How many lives for Helen of Troy? How many lives? How many lives? How many husbands and how many wives to bring her back over the ocean? Across the wine dark sea spreads the rosy finger dawn. It lights your eyes with longing, but still you linger on. Day after day, Ulysses, the sands of time run through. Go back to see it's in your heart. I will wait for you. This is Politics and Letters. I'm Lucas Spiro, and our guest today for this episode is Joyce Scholar and author Sam Sloat. One of the more famous quotes from James Joyce about his novel Ulysses, a masterpiece of high modernism and widely considered one of the most significant publications of the 20th century, is his claim that he puts so many enigmas and puzzles in Ulysses that it will keep the professors busy for centuries. While it certainly sounds like something Joyce may have said, the authors of Annotations to James Joyce's Ulysses published in 2022 by Oxford University Press, demonstrates the critical and scholastic research that comprises their annotations by asserting there's no reason to believe Joyce ever made the claim, despite being in Richard Ellman's biography of the writer. Annotating Ulysses, the authors write, involves researching relevant facts and not puzzle-solving. Today we will discuss with Professor Sloat the critical, historical, and philosophical foundations and implications of this new volume of annotations, and what constitutes a relevant fact when it comes to a novel that can sometimes point in any and every direction all at once. Sam Sloat is professor in English at Trinity College Dublin and the co-director of the graduate program in Irish writing. His research focuses on 20th century modernism and late modernism, with an emphasis on the works of James Joyce and Samuel Beckett. His work draws on theoretical approaches such as deconstruction, translation theory, mimetic theory, gender studies, textual studies, and genetic criticism. He has co-edited six volumes on Joyce and is the author of Joyce's Nietzschean Ethics. His most recent publication is Annotations to James Joyce's Ulysses from Oxford University Press, co-written with Mark Memogonian and John Turner. Currently, he's working on a project on Joyce and Mimesis. Professor Sam Sloat, thank you for joining us today on Politics and Letters. Thank you for asking me. Can you begin by describing what genetic criticism is and does, its theoretical foundations and implications, and how genetic criticism fits into the beginnings and trajectory of your own work in Joyce scholarship? Uh, What were the theoretical schools of thought through which you began studying Ulysses, and what were the major questions facing literary theory and Joyce studies at the time? And how does that trajectory relate to the culmination of this new edition of Annotations? And in any ways, is it a departure from or continuation of your own scholastic work? Genetic criticism, it's one of those things that is perhaps not the best name for it since it applies. It might be a field of biology or at least within the sciences. Um, The basic idea, motivating idea behind it is that literary artistic works seldom, if ever, emerge Athena-like out of an author's head, that they require time of composition. Over During that process, the work changes, and that these changes are recorded in various drafts. Portrait, Ulysses, and Finnegan's Wake 
end with statements about where they were written and when they were written. Ulysses famously, um, Trieste, Zurich, Paris, 1914-1921. So it's as it were signed by the fact that it took seven years to write. Likewise, Finnegan's Wake, Paris, 1922-1939, 17 years. In the cases of, of both books, the stay with Ulysses, the Ulysses that was published in 1922 is not the Ulysses that Joyce had in mind when he began writing it. It changed and it changed quite considerably. So one of the things that genetic criticism does is it investigates the time spent on this composition, looking at the paths that might have been taken to try and understand what is on the basis of what else. Does that make it sort of a study of writing instead of writing of, or a study of texts? It can be, I mean, that's just, I was trying to define it in the most general ways. There are a lot of different ways that one can take that sort of basic approach to a literary text. It can even be taken as a type of cultural criticism, or it could be just looked at in terms of the evolution of aesthetics. There's no sort of programmed um, outcome to this type of investigation. This basically makes reading quite a bit more complicated because you're not just, it, it, it involves more than just you know, sitting in a comfy chair with a, a paperback and a pencil. You have to, you have reams of documents as well. Some, in some cases, they can be hard to access, although the digitization of manuscripts, it is becoming easier and easier. And one of the things tried to do in the annotations is show there's a certain depth of the text that you can get at by looking at it as not just one text, but as many that are all somehow folded up into a book we call Ulysses. And I hope to get a little bit more to uh, the actual sort of work that went into producing this particular edition, in addition to the questions raised by uh, new digital uh, communications as well, or digital archives. Also, just getting back to your own sort of uh, original uh, studies with Joyce as well, was there a certain school of thought that you were working with then, or a certain theoretical school, and then genetic criticism was part of it, or was something that came afterwards related to perhaps, you know... Sort of the, the genetics of my own interest. The, the genetics of your own interest and, and, and your own scholarship, yeah. Well, my advisor in graduate school, David Heyman, was one of sort of the earliest practitioners of genetic criticism. So he kind of forced it on me would be a little bit misleading, but he nudged me firmly in that direction at that time. And still to a large extent, I'm interested in what could be loosely, although I'm not happy with the term, called post-structuralist thoughts. Um, and the post-structuralism and genetic criticism do have a kind of shared history in their emergence as fields of studies in France in the 1970s and 80s. So there is definitely kind of a crossover there, but they do also have um, different emphases. So I sort of bob and weave and try to negotiate around the two and sort of making, uh, there's one tendency I have to annoyingly pedantic precision, um, which sometimes comes when you have to deal with just sorting out lots and lots of information, lots of different textual levels, just keeping the facts straight. And on the other hand, sort of grand, larger claims that derive from that kind of persnickety uh, scholarship. You mentioned that there's things sort of outside the text or things that are pointing to, and obviously these annotations uh, back up the fact that there are texts and paratexts, as you've referred to them in previous lectures and, and papers. It's sort of a response, though, I suppose, to new criticism and what emerged in the 50s. And, and in what ways does the kind of work that the annotations presupposes or the work that you were doing 
in what ways does it sort of respond to or leave or reject or uh, add to, you know, what was coming before in literary studies in terms of perhaps new criticism or uh, the epistemological concerns of literary theory before the 1970s? New criticism—it's one of the things. You're ever going to start a field of a, a new branch of literary criticism, or really any kind of discipline, never preface it with the term "new" because that's going to date it very, very um, soon. You could also perhaps even say the word "post" as well. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or "neo." Yeah, <laughs> you're not fooling anyone there. Um, I mean, in some sense, of the, with the annotations, there is there is a, there is a mild agenda behind it, but. Try to make it as mild as possible, precisely because, in effect, the agenda is wanting to make it as useful as possible to as wide a range of readership as possible. So, in effect, it's just trying to provide information, the kind of interpretation, what the users of the annotations do from that, I don't want to direct. The only kind of, the only agenda is to be as minimally interpretive as possible. When I say sort of just the facts, that is already a fairly strong interpretive claim, because it's what facts do I bring in, what elements are relative, uh, or are, are relevant to the specific text at hand. So there is a fair amount of editorial intervention that's required, but try to do it with as light a hand as possible. The big benefits of this project was that it was a collaborative thing, so that there was, there was a lot a lot of give and take between the three of us during the discussions. Um, I remember one one morning uh, showing my wife um, this annotation. We've, we've taken de- days debating this, and the sort of the, the comments on the on the margins just were, were testified to the. To, to the ongoing, and at some points probably even bitter debate the three of us had, but the resultant note I thought was fantastic, that it really was improved by this uh, dynamic interaction between the three of us. So I probably show this to my wife along with the, the reams of comments, and she just went, yeah, is this what you've been spending years on? <laughs> it sort of put me in my place on that. And just in terms of this kind of, you mentioned the word epistemology, there's an odd epistemological emotion if I can put it that way, that I had, I should have written down what notes this happened on. And it was definitely multiple notes, but I went through this kind of interesting trajectory of the course of revision, feeling this is really good. I'm learning a lot. I'm presenting all this information in a compact and efficient way. This is fantastic, this kind of smugness. And then as I'm sort of finishing it up, come across a little, maybe a fact or just a little element of, eh, should I include this? It might sort of disturb this well-written thing. Yeah, I probably should nuance it. Then as I start to look into it, I realize, oh, wait, this completely undermines, contradicts everything I've ever written. So I went from this position of extreme cockiness to, I know nothing. Which brings up something that you and your co-authors discuss in the introduction. You mentioned already how that you don't want to offer interpretations of the text, but rather provide information and enable readers to find their own interpretations about without predisposing or ordaining them. The idea of annotations, though, does sort of presuppose the idea that you are directing interpretation. Um, but even in your own work or your own research for this particular project, which you mentioned did take years, when I was looking at some of the uh, the footnotes and notes to the introduction itself, I mean, you're going back to working with 
John Kidd in, in Boston in the mid nineties, you know, himself a sort of, um, uh, contentious figure within, within Joyce scholarship, uh, himself, who, uh, was made famous during what was known as the Joyce Wars, a sort of, a perhaps overblown, but maybe, you know, appropriate term for, uh, reaction to the Gabler edition in the early 1980s. But that also brings us to this idea that Cullum Tobin talked about a lot in his essay about the annotations for the London Review of Books, which is errors and mistakes. Um, there's a famous quote that most anybody who's read the book will remember from Stephen about uh, how the errors of or the mistakes of a genius are volitional portals of discovery. There's a part where uh, perhaps Martha Clifford is suggested to be uh, an actual other character in the book yeah. in, in Colin Tobin's essay. And at the end of it, he suggests that maybe it's not the case that, you know, this entire theory that was elaborated by another critic um, may not be uh, true at all. And it's the fact that there is no answer to this particular puzzle that was either, that was offered by the book, but also put onto the book by the critic looking at it. And so you say, well, was I just led down the garden path? And it seems like even in your own experience in researching all these annotations, that happened. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit more about errors, mistakes, and their inevitability with regards to both annotating Ulysses and perhaps in studying uh, Ulysses itself? Well, I, mean, the, the, sort of, I think the broader thing behind your question is the aesthetics of Ulysses, and to some extent, um, the aesthetics of the reader of Ulysses. And Ulysses is such a rich book that it can appeal to a wide variety of different types of understanding. I think perhaps the better example, rather than Martha Clifford, if I remind me to get back to Martha Clifford, if, if I sort of meander away, would be the more famous riddle that Joyce put in of um, the man in the Macintosh, where he, Joyce himself, asked uh, someone, saying, um, at least according to the Alman biography, could you tell me who the man in the Macintosh is? And so that is very much presented as a riddle of Ulysses. And so the annotation for that, as with the annotation for Martha Clifford, rather than trying to solve it, I just presented all the theories that, I, uh, that I'm aware of around trying to um, establish their identities. And in both cases, I do have personal preferences, but I didn't want to indicate those in the annotations. But so some of the examples that of, of identities of, of the man in the Macintosh, one, I guess one of the more famous ones is Nabokov's suggestion that it's Joyce himself. And this is actually, this kind of authorial projection into the text is very much a game Nabokov plays in his fictions, where it's not that Joyce doesn't do it, but he does it in a different way. Nothing quite is, say, overt. Indeed, in uh, Stephen Shakespeare theory, he ultimately rests on the idea that Shakespeare cannot be isolated in any one character, that he is all in all, that all of the characters are to some extent fractal, metonymic projections of Shakespeare. So I think Joyce's aesthetics are different than Abakov's, and his identification is reading himself into that, the text. And there's nothing wrong with that, because that is also how Stephen himself argues what the act of reading is. So if one wants to find riddles, go for it. <laughs> there's one can certainly, um, there's certainly room for that. And I think what what Tobin did in his review is he takes one, he, he looked at the various um, Martha Clifford things that I indicated, he just, all oh, pick this one and look at it, and he gets sort of, he goes down that rabbit hole, and then fortunately climbs back out of it. Um, I think there is a very good, I think, unlike the man in the Macintosh, I think there is a perfect identification of Martha Clifford that's in Ulysses, and it is one of the theories that I allude to, 
but I certainly didn't want to project it out because then that becomes interpretive. And to some extent, it might have just been a matter of me projecting my own aesthetics to Ulysses. And this is one of the points you start with, just, just by virtue of having a volume of annotations, that is already a kind of interpretation that is being presumed, that this is a text that needs annotations. Here you are. Um, so that, that it, it is already a strong interpretive gesture. It's also part of why I said that it wasn't that I was neutral and without agenda, but I tried to minimize it as much as possible in the context of working on a fairly long book of annotations to Ulysses. Um, and so, yeah, I think that um, an error is also one of the things that resides, um, that, that, that is very much a cognate concept here, that the line, um, a man of genius makes no mistakes, his errors are volitional and are portals of discovery. It's a brilliant line for Joyce because it means anything that might seem like a mistake that's not my problem, that's yours. Um, and he does make mistakes, but there are, um, there are a few that you can really point to with about as near certainty as poss uh, possible that that is a mistake. There are cer certain things at the exact other end of the scale where, yes, this seems like a mistake, but this fits within what Joyce is doing, but the vast range fall in between that kind of spectrum. And again, where an individual reader might go, it to some extent depends on their aesthetics of how they want to appreciate Ulysses. And also, to be fair, many readers might not want to care about it. I mean, just it is just the, the book of annotations. It's it's a reference work. It's not meant to be read cover to cover. As I was gone down the road one fine morning. Oh, the brown and the yellow ale I met with a man who was no right man Oh, love of me heart He asked me if the woman by my side was me daughter Oh, the brown and the yellow ale When I said she was my wife his manner didn't alter. Oh, love of me heart. He asked me if I'd lend her for an hour and a day. Oh, the brown and the yellow ale. I said, if you think it fair, take her away. He said, then you take the high road, I'll take the lower. Oh, the brown and the yellow ale. And we'll meet again by the ford of the river. Oh, love of me heart. I was waiting by that ford for an hour and three quarters. Oh, the brown and the yellow ale. When she came to me, it was without shame I saw her. These are not the first annotations to Ulysses. In fact, you know, the idea that texts are speaking to other texts is a hallmark of modernism. Most famous example that you'll get in any sort of modernism 101 class is uh, the footnotes to um, uh, The Wasteland or something like that, where you say, uh, I'm not just talking about this poem, I'm talking about all the other poems or something like that. 
So there are other additions with expletive notes out there. Um, the most ubiquitous one are the ones by uh, Don Gifford, uh, which were basically required supplementary into anyone in a Ulysses College course um, until now, which might be your book. Um, uh, so how does this new edition of annotations differ from Gifford's and others? And uh, ultimately, you may have already answered this one, but like, what are, in your opinion, annotations for in this instance? And perhaps is it a uniquely... Is it unique to the study of modernist literature as well because of the kind of work that they were doing in the uh, early 20th century? Well, I mean, the thing with the Eliot's notes is there's a sort of the story, the story that they were written because they needed extra pages to flesh out because it's sort of the physical limitations of the book. They had a whole bunch of blank pages from the, 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 the choirs and the gatherings they had. It's not, I don't think that's that's been 100% confirmed. That's certainly been suggested because the annotations to them are certainly idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also, it's, there is something within the f the various types of modernist styles that do invite this kind of rampant intertextuality to a greater level than at least much of literary output that had come before. But there is one key, clearly pre-modernist precedent to this, Dante, that and he. Dante himself said that the, the Commedia is to be read in the same way as the Bible, which is you know, an arrogant claim, but he, he had the, 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 the skill to pull that off. And so right from the start, there was a healthy tradition of Dante commentaries. One of the first projects in the digital humanities is the Dartmouth Dante Project, which goes back to the 1960s, which is a huge anthology of Dante commentaries from just about Dante's, uh, just after Dante died, to the present. And it's really interesting sort of tracing out the scholarship and concerns that happen and how errors enter the critical discourse and they sort of get canonized and stay there for a while until someone else, no, wait a minute, this can't, can't be right. So there's this kind of evolution that happens. Um, and it's one of the things with the, 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 um, the Gifford volume is that no work of scholarship can stand um, for an eternity. It really only have a lifetime of about a human lifetime or, or less, 20, 30 years. Um, so it was in, in very much in need of being superseded. There, a lot of, there, a lot of scholarship has happened since Gifford Gifford's time. Gifford's thing was also a collaborative thing with uh, Robert Seidman. And when I was, uh, met with Seidman last year, he was you know, he was quite happy that the mantle had been taken up. And it's it's not just a question of new information. There are different types of focuses focusing that um, we do in our volume. We pay more attention to sort of some of the underlying textual mechanics. We don't force genetic criticism on the readers of the annotations, but we also show that there are certain issues that underlie the text that can't perhaps explain or perhaps are, on the other hand, maybe add an interesting complication or two. This one particular example that you mentioned in the introduction uh, about what is can only be described as a, as, a, as a mistake through the tradition of criticism of Ulysses, which is uh, in uh, when Stephen's walking along the Strand, the the German word uh, Niebeneinder, yeah, uh, yeah, and and how it was one critic's uh, assertion about the source of that particular word in Ulysses, and that was all we had to go on. But you know, one thing that your uh, edition does is actually does offer a corrective to that. You can maybe talk about the way in which that came about and. Does it have any sort of interpretive implication? What are the interpretive implications? Well, it's yes. As Steve is walking along the beach, he uses these sort of 
unconventional words, um, Nakanine or Nebanine or next to each other um, and after each other. And uh, Fritzen in the 1960s glossies is coming from the aesthetics of Gotthold Lessing, which is a very sensible suggestion since Stephen refers to Lessing in both a portrait and Ulysses. So you, ha you have um, a direct indication that this is something Joyce would have been familiar with. He does, however, note that Lessing generally doesn't use these terms as such, but they appear in critical discourse around Lessing, which is perfectly explicable by um, Joyce not reading Lessing directly, but getting his information from a secondhand source. So he presented that information, presented that interpretation with a good, strong qualification. Um, in the first volume of sort of annotations to Ulysses, which is actually by Weldon Thornton, reprises sense information, um, but he doesn't present the qualification. And so that, that the, the, the Lessing as the source of this becomes canonized. Then Gifford um, even would go, goes one step further is that he presents a translation of um, a, a relevant passage from Lessing along with the interpolated Nakanider Nebenider words in there um, to show that this is Lessing using the words. It's a little bit. Oh, I, I, I really wanted to refrain from criticizing Gifford because it's it, it's too easy, and we know that. We're going to get criticized ourselves for the, the doubtless mistakes we made, but the interpolated words, one of them isn't in the text. He just sort of puts it there to make it seem that it is, sort of to enhance the evidence. And so it, it's, it indicated it lodged in critics' minds that this is, was Joyce's source. This only came out, came to light in 2003, a notebook that Joyce had, a series of notes from um, the Austrian critic Otto Weininger, and it, the, the words come from Weininger's book, clearly documented by Joyce's notebook. The heading on the page in which he has the words is helpfully labeled Weininger. And in the book, Weininger uses these words also, but more generally, the words are relatively standard within the German philosophical tradition. So the connection to Lessing is maybe not completely absent, but it would be much more mediated, and the immediate source is through is through Weininger, which also makes a little bit more sense in terms of the context, because Stephen is thinking about, is, is using these terms in the context of the phenomenology of perception. And that's exactly how Weininger uses these words. Lessing uses the terms or the terms that get associated with that in a slightly different sense, more in the context of aesthetic apprehension. So the Lessing context is a little bit off. And again, this is not a major kind of kind of thing, but it is sort of it's slightly shifting the tone and register of the way Stephen is uh, of how someone might understand what Stephen is thinking, and also how one understands how Joyce put Ulysses together. We do all this work so you don't have to. It's much easier for an individual reader just look it up there. It's a um, if you'd be amazed at the number of notes that took days and days of work, and they're like maybe four lines of annotations. I mean, because I know certainly some of the work is to try and present the information as compactly as possible to sort of kind of not show that kind of effort. So yeah, there is this, is, and to an extent, this is what scholarship is, this sort of dull, boring, pedantic work. 
a lot of it can be made is is made easier now with, with the digitization of resources from libraries across across the world. But there is still a lot of grunt work that goes into it. Many readers don't want to do the grunt work, but they do certainly. Some of them might benefit. Um, might might find some advantage to that that information. But then, of course, not all of them will or should. Previously, you mentioned that we didn't know uh, an answer to that particular question around Lessing until we found uh, an actual notebook in Joyce's own hand. And previously, you would have had to have either been in Dublin, Buffalo, Philadelphia, or Ithaca, appropriately, to basically even get your hands or see that kind of stuff. Could you talk a little bit about how this project, because it is a many, many years project, how the work itself changed, particularly in the case of digitization, um, and how that may have changed the course of it, or that changed the way in which you uh, and your co-authors were working on this from... And can I like when did this particular project start? The immediate uh, predecessor was the Alma annotation. It's already had a kind of a kind of prehistory. Starting from scratch is not quite right, but there were good. There's a good level of sort of stable notes that we would have from the Alma that we could then build on. In some cases, expanding those. We didn't have to reinvent the wheel. But yeah, I mean this. I, from when this specific project started to when it finished was six years. And we're um, compiling the corrections for the next edition, which now run to about 100 pages. One thing that I did notice, this may be uh, a historically accurate thing, but I think the distance between Fingless Village and Prospect Cemetery may be wrong. There definitely are errors along that line that I have noted and corrected. So email that to me and I'll see what I can do. Okay, that'll, that'll be my footnote. When she told me her story, I lay down and I died. Oh, the brown and the yellow ale. She sent two men for timber. She never even cried. Oh, love of me heart. Aboard of Alder, aboard of Holly. Oh, the brown and the yellow ale. And two great yards of sack about me. Oh, Now I had me own little mother, never been a woman. Oh, the brown and the yellow ale. I'd sing you many another song about a woman. question that I sort of have as well, the the idea of the annotations and Ulysses is a book that is, I think, particularly uh, suited to this, not only because it's a masterpiece of high modernism with its own sort of tropes and uh, and hallmarks, uh, but because it has so many things that it points to. Originally, they were illusions, and so we were talking about uh, an aesthetic product with um, uh, aesthetic illusions or other artistic illusions, and then there's the historical documents. But there's also the historical conditions in which the writer is working in, which are, to some readers and critics, perhaps uh, conspicuously absent, or at least conspicuously absent in an overt way, perhaps not a covert way, to the years in which he's writing, which is essentially uh, the monumental shift in uh, the 20th century, World War One, and then in Ireland's own context, the uh, the Irish Revolution. So we're writing between what 19, uh, essentially 12 and 22, or uh, 14. Well, uh, well he, the, the the date he has at the end, 
he's actually alive. He says 1914 to 1921. The last thing he did on Ulysses is actually on, on a page proof dated January, the end of January 1922. Um, I mean, like three days before publication, it was, it was sort of. Um, so it, it goes into 22, and he almost certainly only started Ulysses in 1915. It's the 1914 start date is allowable. I think if you um, take into account the sort of the, the extension to a portrait that Joyce originally conceived of continuing a portrait past Stephen's departure to Paris, that he'd actually come back to Dublin. And a few pages of that draft survive at the British Library, and it's recognizably a proto-draft of, of the Telemachus episode. So Ulysses sort of came out of that, and that was drafted in 1914. So I think the 1914 date is allowable. But sort of the larger point of that it's a novel written in one phase, but very specifically set earlier. And to some extent, Joyce does extensive research to present the information of what life in Dublin was like on June uh, 16th, 1904. Relies on a lot of newspapers um, of and around that day. Tom's directory is very much um, uh, an element. Yes, there's a lot of... So that the things that people are thinking about are things that would have been in the air on that day, like the bicycle races that happened here at um, Trinity. I actually just got um, an email from one of the uh, last week, an email from one of the librarians saying that she was contacted by someone who thinks that his uncle is mentioned in Ulysses and gave me the point, yeah, he's in the bicycle races, he meant one line in Wandering Rocks, here's the newspaper that Joyce used to get that information. So he's very meticulous at getting, setting the historical stage, except when he isn't that there's certain things that are anachronistic, that just are, are wrong, um, probably because Joyce didn't care. It's certain, and there are definitely bits of information that are relevant to World War One or the um, um, Easter Rising of, of 1916 or subsequent developments in Irish history that he then plugs into Ulysses for various purposes. The reference to Roger Casement in um, Cyclops is an example. Casement would have been famous in 1904 because of the report he did the year before on the exploitation by Belgium of their, their Congolese rubber plantations and so on. But the citizen, when he mentions a report that a Casement you hear, he's Irish. That's what tips it to a reference to 1916. Because while Casement would have been famous in 1904, he wouldn't have been famous for being Irish. He was famous for being a British civil servant. And over the years, he became more and more radicalized to the Irish cause, which led to what happened in 1916. So by identifying the citizen as Irish, Joyce, and that's one of several references to 1916 that underlie the, um, um, the, the Cyclops episode. Uh, a number of years ago, in fact, it was in, exactly in, uh, in 2014, one of my colleagues asked me, this is what we know, doing well within the decade of Centennial, so 19, 2014 was the 100th anniversary of the Third Home Rule Bill. So she asked me if there are any references to the Third Home Rule Bill in Ulysses. And at that time, I couldn't think of any. But then when going through the annotations, I did find one, and it's a doozy. It's in Circe when Bloom is accosted by one of the sort of the, the um, vigilance patrols that would go around the red light district, and tries to present himself as a respectful British subject. Oh, yes, 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 um, the Boer War, that statue of General Gough in the park. 
And that's a very interesting reference that Rawls relies on a degree of Bloomian misapprehension, but it's also an apparent error that Joyce is making, although this one would be almost very, it's so politically prompted. There was, there was a statue of a British general named Goff in Phoenix Park. Statue was taken down in the 1950s for unsurprising reasons. But that General Goff was complete, had no association with either of the Boer Wars. He died before the first one. Ah, oh, yes, the Boer War, that statue of General Goff in the park. It's, those two references don't combine. There is a General Goff who was associated with the Second Boer War. But in the Second Boer War and in 1904, just after it, he was not yet a general. He was only a colonel at that point. He was promoted afterwards. And he was played a very significant role in and around the Third Home Rule Bill, that as it was clear it was going to be passed, it was also clear that Unionists in the North were not going to support it. And there was a rumor that was going around that the British government wanted the bill to pass. And so they didn't... And, therefore didn't want any interference from the Unionists, and therefore this, the rumor was that they would order British troops to quell any insurrection from Unionists in the North. Now, this is completely untrue. Goff, who at that time was the commander of the Cara military park, in uh, uh, the military base in Ireland, and he wouldn't stand for this. So he said, we will not, we will mutiny before we um, 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 follow through this treasonous order, yada, yada, yada. And um, the Cara mutiny, as it was called, was such that um, the British the government had to say, formally declared that the, 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 there will be no military intervention, whatever happens. This emboldened the Unionists and is one of the significant contributing factors to partition. So it's a very, very loaded reference that Joyce programs into it. It's obviously anachronistic. It's also shown one of the ways in which Ulysses is plugging in to subsequent historical events. So I suppose the question I have then is, why 1904? Why is he trapped in 1904? And beyond, you know, just the memorializing the date with Nora and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, has its limitations in, in, in terms of its, its, its value. Why 1904? And it's primarily the Nora thing. It's also, I mean, to some extent, it's, it's always a hard question to say to us, why does he make this choice or another? I wrote, I wrote a thing a few years ago about the ways in which Joyce, the Gibraltar factors into, into, into Ulysses, that Joyce had never been to Gibraltar. Yet he, the, the allusions to it are very, very good, um, very precise. But when he came to writing Penelope and Molly's Memories, he didn't have first-hand experience of living in Gibraltar, but he did have first-hand experience of writing about a place while using sort while using secondary texts as his source information, Tom, writing about Dublin with Tom's directory. Now, when he had, was doing that, he'd also had his own first-hand experience to contextualize it. But the textual operation of writing about a place refracted through a wide variety of secondary documentation that Joyce did have, and that's how he cobbled together Molly's impressions of Gibraltar through what through it's an entirely textual construct. But then it also sort of avoids the question of why does Joyce pick Gibraltar? Why does she have to be from there? Which I cannot quite answer. I can sort of get to it from maybe the next level. Gibraltar affords 
Joyce a lot of resonances that he is able to exploit. Gibraltar stands at one edge of the, uh, of the British dominions within Europe, just as Ireland stands at a different corner. So the, the military correspondences between the two, he can definitely exploit. As a footnote, one of the things that came um, immediately manifest after Brexit was, this kind of complicates the situations of Gibraltar and Ireland. Um, so the, the, those, those particular colonial resonances have afterlives that go on to this day. So there's that which he uses. There's the um, association of Gibraltar with Odysseus, part of the Mediterranean world. He certainly exploits that. There's a key role in terms of the Ulysses of Dante, that Dante's Ulysses travels beyond Gibraltar, that that was the end of the Western world. Doesn't go well for him, which is why he winds up in the Inferno. So there are a lot of resonances he can exploit, and certainly does, but it doesn't quite explain why he chose it. And so then if you sort of take that idea to 1904, there are a lot of things about 1904, and specifically June 16th, 1904, that Joyce can and does exploit. But had he chosen a different date, there would have been different things. I mean, the fact that the Gold Cup race happened on that date. Joyce gets a lot of mileage out of that. But if he picked a different day, there would have been other things he could have used. So it's a quite answer that. So maybe it probably really goes down to that was the date, the, the, the date of his first date with Nora. But it's also, and this is actually one of the things that will be in the, the next edition of the annotations. Yes, he chose June 16th, 1904, because that was the date with Nora. But he didn't want us to know that. And I think that little twist shows something about Joyce's aesthetics, that in the library debate about Shakespeare, um, Stephen has a sort of theory as to why Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, what in his psychology led him to write this specific play. And it's a long, complicated theory I won't go into now, but at one point, the uh, two assistant librarians with whom he's debating this, one says, well, I mean, we know nothing about Shakespeare's life, only that we, he, he lived and he died, maybe not even that much. He's, a, he's mysterious. The other goes, ah, but his plays are so personal, aren't they? And those two positions are not mutually exclusive, that the writing can be deeply personal without revealing any of the facts of the author who wrote it. And I think that is the, at least this coincides with my aesthetics of reading Ulysses. And so if you take that, to then the question of the date. The first biography of Joyce was the one by Herbert Gorman that came out in 1939. It's problematic in some ways because it's not quite a fully authorized biography because Joyce and Gorman had a falling out towards the end, but it is close to that, and it certainly, it presents a Joyce that Joyce himself wanted made public, which again, it's not necessarily accurate, but that gives it a kind of value, that this is the image of himself he wanted out there. And we have some of the, 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 the paperwork, the correspondence in the, between Gorman and Joyce and, and, and some of Gorman's drafts. At one point, Gorman asked Joyce, what's the deal with June 16th? Is that when you first met Nora? No, we met on June 10th. And then I'll explain the significance of the 16th later. And Joyce never did. So Gorman's biography is, he writes, well, well, the significance of June's, the six days after Joyce, the day six days after he first met Nora, what it means, we'll never know. 
And he, and he just sort of leaves that as, as an open question. He could give it some sort of a God authorial thing where on the, it couldn't have been seven days after because that was the day that God rested. <laughs> You can do, I mean, again, you can get all sorts of extravagant interpretations. And so it wasn't until Elman's biography that the answer was cracked, um, because Elman had access to the letters with Nora. He also um, interviewed Stanislaus, Joyce's brother, and Nora's family. So it was with those inside, that bit of insider information, then it becomes unambiguous. So now it's presented and it enters the realm of fact. But if you sort of dial back to pre-Elman, then it's, you get the thing that it's pers- it has to be personal in some way, but why? We don't know. And I think that's part of the idea behind it. I definitely wanted to put that, now Now want to put that in the annotation, because I think that gives a little bit more nuance and depth to that date. Again, it doesn't perhaps fully explain why, but there's at least bits of information that can help one think through these kinds of questions. And it also, I think, does say something about Joyce's own aesthetics, or at least, or at the very least, my understanding of Joyce's aesthetics. It suggests that there's um, another possibility for Joyce's own relationship, perhaps, to Dublin and to Ireland more generally that uh, was closed off, perhaps, around that time. And again, this is this sort of fall, falls in terms of the resonances that Joyce is able to exploit. The 1890s have been a very strong politically active um, element in terms of the move towards home rule. Home rule seemed inevitable. Then after the failure of the second home rule bill, and also and um, um, with Parnell gone and the, uh, the Irish political parliamentary parties divided, the political solution really seemed out of reach for a generation, which was more or less what happened. And so this kind of falls in the fallow period of, of the Irish, the political quest for autonomy, but the active phase in terms of what is now called the Irish revival, as opposed to the sort of the earlier term Irish literary revival, because it's more general and more expansive than just the you know, manifestations in, in, in the literary arts. And so there's definitely, that is part of the cultural milieu, but the sort of, the political activism was dormant until about 1907, 1908, and then the slow climb back up. And then first with the lockout, that's when it starts to really become intense again. So it is definitely, an, it is a very specific phase of, 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 the, of the political history of, of Irish autonomy. Again, Joyce certainly exploits that, but again, had he put it a different date, there have been other things he could have taken advantage of. And again, also in terms of the anachronisms, Bloom works at the, the, the Freeman's Journal. In 1904, the Freeman's really would have was the main organ of Irish nationalist sentiment. But it certainly wasn't 10 years later. Indeed, when, um, Joyce's um, last two trips to Ireland in 1909, 1912, the, his representation of the Freeman more comes from that than from the state it was in 1904. And now, black am woman, among the crew, cried out your royal savage, what's that to do with you? Your royal ladies is too meek and mild, tell me, get this honestly, this darling little child. And then says Pharaoh, I'll search every nook from the phoenix.
Hyde Park, Delta Donnybrook. And when I catch hold of the bastard's father, I will kick him from the Nile down to the dollar. It was that, that hotel that just opened that, that calls itself the tribute to Ulysses with, you know, fancy, fancy paintings here. And there is the idea of Joyce as brand through which Dublin and Board Felcher can exploit. And to some extent, there's maybe nothing wrong with that as an idea, although certainly some specific individual manifestations are problematic. And it's also interesting in terms of what gets canonized, memorialized, commemorated versus what doesn't. Like the, the house of the dead is allowed to rot on, on the keys. That's really, it's, when that goes, it's gone. It's remarkable that it survived as long as it has in, and it is intact a form that it has, but there's no interest in, in keeping it. Um, the same thing happened to Seven Eccles Street, which was uh, the two most famous addresses in literature, or at least in Anglophone literature, are Seven Eccles Street and 221B Baker Street. Now, Seven Eccles Street was a real house. 221B Baker Street was not a real address, at least not when Conan Doyle was writing. After World War II, the um, street boundaries in London, there's this bit of redefinition. And so Baker Street was extended or rather took over another street. So a 221 came into existence afterwards. And then there was a kind of battle for which address actually owned the rights to that. Technically, it fell within a branch of a bank. And they decided to be good custodians of it. And they employed someone whose job was to answer post sent out to Sherlock Holmes, 221B Baker Street. So they took it seriously. Uh, but then um, at some point, I think in the 80s, a Sherlock Holmes museum opened across the street and they claimed that address as their own, even though numerically it didn't fit in. And then there was apparently a bit of a battle between the two entities for control of it. So the non-real address, there is the battle for cultural preservation, whereas in Dublin, Seven Eccles Street was allowed to um, be demolished. And on the other hand, I don't, it, there's perhaps that that is in the nature of what cities do. They grow, they evolve, it became a hospital. I, it, it is in the nature of cities to change. Um, but in terms of the, the, and I think that this is also something that, that that's even commented on in Ulysses when one of the characters, Hugh Love, is walking across Dublin and he maps out his trajectory against landmarks that have long gone. And while Joyce is so, you know, one, one talk I gave, I sort of, sort of well, somewhat semi-ironically characterized Ulysses' Dublin fanfic. And while there's certainly, if you look at it from a certain way, it looks like there's that to it. He said that I, one of the reasons why I, rep, I always go back to Dublin is if I can represent it accurately, I can get to the heart of every city in the world. That in representing the specificities of Dublin as tightly as he can, he somehow is able to echo other cities as well. I think this is why Ulysses has found such resonance outside of Dublin, people who don't care about the more uh, persnickety bits of Dublin fanfic that, he, that, that are plugged into Ulysses precisely because they can see 
in that echoes of their own cities, echoes of their own experiences. So yeah, you walk around Dublin now, it's like you're almost forced to be in a Joycean mode. Colm Tobin actually wrote a piece about that a number of years ago about walking through Dublin is, at least in certain parts of downtown Dublin, you get many different authors Dublin superimposed over a very, fairly simple trajectory that you might do. And there's also the inspiration, that idea is also the inspiration for um, Chris Morash's new book on, on Dublin. So the city haunt, haunted is maybe not quite the right word, but how different of authors' perceptions of it combine in one's own imagination. But this is certainly an experiment that is not limited to just Dublin. And finally, do you have a favorite annotation? I do and I don't. Um, to some extent, it's the, the last one I've written, because that's what I'm sort of proudest of. There are a few that I am quite happy with, although there's one... <laughs> where I was sort of so happy that I read it over and over again, and, and this is sort of the standard academic thing, only noticing a typo after it was the book was published, and a really embarrassing typo as well. But um, Joyce's dislike of inverted commas for quotation marks, and so he called them perverted commas, whereas in the, in the, in the, in the, it'll, this will be corrected in the paperback, but I, I put it perverted commas. <laughs> And it was an annotation I read, yeah, read over because, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's so good. And then, oh, you know, yeah, damn it. Um, the, the sort of the standard academic joke, the quickest way to find uh, proofing errors in a document is to click send or, 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 or submit or, or whatever. So there are some notes that I do like, but I think the, the last one I've written is, um, it might be sort of more general, it's like the the as of today, and this is one of the ones that will be in the the next edition, which will be out in about 10 years, it's a note on this line the, the citizen uses in Cyclops, uh, waiting for the wink of the word, or um, about, it's, it's about the citizen, waiting for the wink of the word. It gets clear that this is a sort of idiomatic expression that Joyce didn't invent. And one of the problems with Joyce's use of um, specifically Irish idiomatic expressions is that these can be difficult to document because they in many cases, it's Joyce is the first author to have used them in print. So it's very, and, and some they've never been put in print. Um, an example of that is, is a line, again, this is also from Cyclops, where pints are being ordered, and what do you want, what do you want, uh, Guinness, Guinness, uh, Ditto McAnnespe. But what the hell is that? And then this, this information came from someone named Jerry O'Flaherty, from one of the first generation of Dublin Joyceans, who was a goldmine of information, because he sort of, he's as close to a contemporary of, of Ulysses as would have been available. So the Dublin that's represented there is still the Dublin of his lived experience. And so he's a fantastic source of information. Now, this is just a standard expression in pub talk, the same again. So the, 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 the story goes that there was um, um, a bust of an individual up for auction. The, um, actually, two busts. One was by a distinguished sculptor. The second one, the same individual, but by just local plasterers, the McAnnesby brothers. And so the, the catalog description of the first bust was detailed and effusive. The one for the second was ditto, McAnnesby. Um, and so hence it entered into the Dublin vernacular and so on. And there's the only tangible documentation around that is that there were stucco plasterers with that name. And so it's the kind of thing that if it wasn't for this sort of level of, this sort of source, we just wouldn't know about it. And so these kinds of, 
we have these kinds of issues around other expressions that we um, um, throughout Ulysses. Anyway, last night I was able to track down um, a predecessor to the wink of the word. I mean, it's glossing, it is not unsurprising, but at least showing, as it were, the paper trail that this is an extant expression with a fairly long pedigree before Joyce used it is, I would say, not completely trivial information. In any case, I, I was happy with that note. It's certainly uh, an unsettled text, um, not the annotations themselves, although there will be revisions and changes and uh, uh, it, it won't be the last iteration, but um, Ulysses itself, you know, we know Joyce was famously sort of frantically scribbling additions and changes and revisions, you know, to the printer as they were basically putting them on the page. Um, so uh, uh, for an unsettled text, I suppose it makes sense that there's always going to be this sort of frantic revising of our own interpretations of it and our own uh, understanding of it. Um, quickly, though, on uh, you mentioned uh, Hiberno-English a little bit there as well. Joyce's relationship to that, uh, in Dublin at the time, was there really much of a Hiberno-English being spoken or used, or perhaps was his connection to it more perhaps through through Nora or in her family in the west of Ireland? No, it, would, it would have been the English that would have been spoken in Ireland. Um, it's, just, it's not exactly the same as British English. The scene in the portrait about Tundish is that Stephen... Tundish is a part of his word. He assumes it's the standard, the correct English word. And he's just as surprised um, to find out that it isn't, just as the Dean of Studies is is surprised to learn that the that the word in Ireland for this aspect of a device is not funnel. And then it's sort of the um so it just it that is the indeed that's the title of uh, the PW Joyce book on it, English as it is spoken in Ireland. So it's it was that the language of the land. Across the wine dark sea spreads another rosy dawn. It lights your eyes with longing, but still you linger on. Day after day, Ulysses, the sands of time run true. Go back to see it in your heart, I will wait for you.